Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another Fisher Investments Market Insights podcast, where we discuss our firm's latest thinking on global capital markets and current events. My name is Naj Srinivas. I'm the Group Vice President of Client Communications here at the firm. And today, I'm excited to announce a regular recurring new guest on the show, founder, executive chairman, and co-chief investment officer of Fisher Investments, Ken Fisher. Hey, Naj. Good to be with you. Thank you for being here, Ken, and thanks for spending some time with uh, us and our listeners today. So, Ken, today I want to talk a little bit about politics. We're sitting here in early October 2018, and politics are obviously front of mind for many of our listeners with the midterm elections looming in November. I want to talk about two topics. The first one is the recent confirmation of Supreme Court Associate Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Obviously, the confirmation of uh, Justice Kavanaugh was very politically charged, but setting aside the politics of it for a second, historically speaking, what has been the impact of the Supreme Court or nominees on capital markets generally? The fact is that uh, you can look at a lot of the decisions that have been made, and it's very hard to see market action based on their decisions. Take when, uh, to the surprise of almost everyone, uh, Justice Roberts sided with uh, the notion that the Affordable Care Act was uh, viable function and they did not strike it down. Markets didn't react at all. The people think that these things will happen, but usually there's a basic principle that they miss, which is that the markets work in one basic way all the time, which is to pre-price all widely known information. And these kinds of items are so chewed and chewed and chewed over that they've been digested, turned into cud, rechewed, recutted, and by the time you get to the point where there's some Supreme Court decision that might theoretically change something, everything about the topic matter has been so pre-priced that there's virtually no potential for subsequent market action. That same principle applies to a lot of other things that relate to politics. Uh, if you take all the consternation about the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh, the fact is, the question I always ask people is, so do you know something about uh, this person that other people don't know? And the answer almost always is when you get right down to it, no, they've got opinions about the person. They saw the TV stuff, but so did so many others. They read something in the newspaper, but so did so many others. Uh, they like this and they dislike that, but so do so many others. And that stuff's all been pre-priced. Opinions are all pre-priced. The basis for making a successful bet in the marketplace is to somehow, some way, know something other people don't know, which isn't easy to do and requires you to either get some basic facts they don't have, or be able to process information in a way that leads you to outputs that no one would otherwise even think about. That's non-trivial. It's not easy to do. And the standard political back and forth, which is fundamental to human life, which is these are the things I believe in, these are the things I think are good, liberals think of it this way, conservatives think of it that way, all of which I'm just delighted to have all of those people believe in their views completely as they go through normal sort of what you could view real-world activities. And these things are terribly important in real-world activities to them and others. They're not important to markets. That's the point. That's the point that's hard for people to get, that if it's important to me, whether it's issues in relation to, say, uh, Justice Kavanaugh of uh, the topics of Roe v. Wade or whatever else, if it's important to me, mustn't it be important to markets? No, markets don't care. Markets are pre-priced all that. They're moving on. So a good 
lesson for investors is when you see something that's constantly in the news media or constantly discussed, unless you know something different that other people don't, or you can analyze that information a little bit differently. A lot differently. A lot differently. This is already priced in. So you take uh, so many people that uh, said at the time that listeners will recall very well, that when uh, Donald J. Trump was elected president of the United States, that that would make the market go down, which of course did not happen. Uh, those people are no different than just different group of people who thought exactly the same thing when President Obama was elected. But I always ask a question, for example, about uh, presence, potential presence. What do you know about this person other people don't know? And the answer is almost always nobody knows anything that other people don't know because all that's been so chewed over. I mean, for you to know something about a presidential candidate, for you to have opinions is one thing, but your opinions are probably a lot like most other people's opinions. I always ask people, how different are your opinions and lots of other people's opinions? If your opinions are real similar to lots of other people's opinions, they're all completely prepriced. So switching gears here a little, let's talk about midterm elections, which are imminent here in about a month or so. Historically speaking, what has been the impact of midterm elections on stocks, and do you have any insight on which direction you think the midterm elections are going to go this year? Yes, I do, but not in the ways people normally think about it. If you look at the structure of the elections, uh, A, normally in midterms, uh, the opposition to the president uh, picks up some seats in the House of Representatives. Uh, usually some seats in the Senate. This time, the structure doesn't make it very easy to pick up seats in the Senate for the Democrats, so they probably won't. In fact, the Republicans might pick up a seat or two. It's just based on who's up for re-election where, and there's more Democrats in, uh, that are vulnerable in Republican-based states uh, than there are Republicans in Democratic-based states, really only one of those. So uh, the, the, the Democrats could flip a couple of Senate seats, Arizona, Nevada, um, but it's uh, uh, they, could, they could take Tennessee as well, um, theoretically, but there's a bunch of seats, North Dakota, Missouri, uh, and uh, Montana that uh, are maybe Florida that flipped the other way around. In all of that, regardless, the fact is, what midterms do is they create one of two forms of gridlock. They, they, they move you toward one of two forms of gridlock. The one form is a conventional form that everyone recognizes where the president's party does not have one chamber of Congress or the other or both. And the second form is where the majority party doesn't really have the political power once you get finished with infighting within the party to put any legislation through, such that in American political history, almost all big legislation happens in the first half of a president's term. Almost none happens in the back half of the president's term. That gridlock effect has a pretty predictable impact on markets. And I refer to this uh, sometimes as the 87% miracle, sometimes as the 91% miracle. But if you take the fourth quarter of a midterm election year, the one we're in right now, calendar quarter. Those quarters since the beginning of the S&P 500 have been positive 87% of history. If you look at the subsequent first quarter of the next calendar year, those quarters have been positive 87% of history. And if you look at the subsequent second quarter of the calendar year in the third year of a president's term, those quarters have been positive 87% of history. If you take those three quarters together and think of them as a nine-month streak, 
when you've had those negative uh, quarters, except for two instances, 1939 and 1931, the 31, 32, uh, the nine months as a whole was positive. Positive 91% of history. There's no other streak in history that's even close to that positive where you can associate one thing with a consistent positive outcome. What I sometimes refer to as the 87% miracle, sometimes the 91% miracle, is something that unless you've been associated with Fisher Investments, uh, you haven't read about anywhere. And uh, this is an example of processing information into a conclusion that others can't quite conceive of. But the reality is there are many people that understand that the history of the third year of president's terms has been overwhelmingly positive. There hasn't been a negative third year of a president's term since 1939 as World War II was starting, which was off nine-tenths of one percent only. But the fact is that they don't see that as a front-end loaded year. It really starts as the market pre-prices the outcome of the midterms, which is it starts in October. The fourth quarter of a midterm election year is positive, the same percentage as the first quarter of the next year and the second quarter of the next year, all leading to the 91% miracle. And that feature, uh, which is right here and now, is one that's kind of over the top of most people's heads. It, another way to say that is you get a lot of people fretting right now about all kinds of things around the world, which is real normal. Uh, you got people concerned about just normal stuff, whether it's political stuff in America, whether it's Brexit, uh, whether it's uh, rising interest rates here, or concerns about Italy blowing the uh, uh, euro apart, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The fact is, if you said to someone, would you want to be bearish at a time that's the most consistently positive streak in uh, global stock market history ever? Positive 91% of the time, you want to be bearish then? Most people would say, huh? And uh, I think that's an important thing for people to think about, that in this period, if you're negative, you're spitting into the most consistently positive period in global stock market history that's been positive 91% of history on a consistent basis. You better have a darn good reason for it. Why is gridlock such a good thing for stocks? I think that's a concept that's difficult for many investors to really wrap their heads around since they think inaction, there's so many bad things going on in the world, isn't that a bad thing? Well, A, of course, there are always huge numbers of terrible things going on in the world, and most of the markets don't care about it. Uh, most of the truly hideous and terrible things that go on in the world, markets just are going to not even think about. But the reason gridlock works is the way almost all humans feel is that they hate losses more than they like gains. This is what's called myopic loss aversion. Behavioralists measured this quite some time back. The original work by uh, Bernard Stein Thaler showed that the average American hated a loss about two and a half times as much as they liked to gain. Uh, Mayor Statman and I then later used the Bernard Stein Thaler methodology on the British and the Germans and showed that they were four and six times more to hate losses uh, relative to liking gains. What that means is uh, that if I, I give you a real nice dessert and I punch you in the face a little bit, uh, you're going to really feel uncomfortable based on the whole thing. And uh, that yogurt isn't going to make up for, the dessert isn't going to make up for, for, the, for, the, for the minor punch in the face. And you, you know that in your bones. What happens in politics is almost every major legislation we do, 
somehow it takes from these to give to those. It might be a change in regulation which hurts somebody for some seeming good cause, but the person that it hurts hates it more than the person of the good cause likes it. It might be redistribution of income or wealth. The person you take it from hates it more than the person you give it to likes it. Now, that's not so important because if I mug you in a dark alley, you're the only victim. But in politics, the way it works is we do that mugging in public. And as we get finished taking from these to give to those, all the people who are watching think they might come and get me next. And if we do a bunch of those takings in a row, they become increasingly of the view that I'm next in line. I want out. I'm afraid. That creates rising political risk aversion, and rising political risk aversion is one of the fundamental causes, one of the fundamental causes of rising market risk aversion. And so if you actually look at the history in America, I and mean, you can also see this in other countries, but it works differently in other countries. But, but if you look at the history of negativity and volatility in the U.S. stock market, it's overwhelmingly concentrated in the first two years of a president's term because the president knows when he gets elected, and I say he because they've always been he's, that his party is overwhelmingly going to run into one of the two types of gridlock coming out of the midterms. And whatever would be the most onerous legislation he hopes to try to get through, he's got to get those through in the first two years. Uh, you just don't see those big pieces of legislation in the back half of president's terms. It's the first half of president's terms. And you get that rising risk aversion more or less, a little bit less in the second year than the first year, but half the years are negative in the first half of a president's term. And as I said before, the third year of a president's term, you haven't had a negative year since 1939. Uh, and in the fourth year, only a very few negative years, uh, overwhelmingly um, dominated by 2008 and the Great Depression. The uh, feature that I'm wanting to, 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 to get you to is that it works because we stop having the taking from these to give to those in public that causes people's myopic loss aversion and their fear of losing to go up. That's the driving feature that makes gridlock work. We calm down politically. And as we calm down politically, we calm down about markets too. Do we see the 87% miracle washing over internationally as well? Does that have an impact on global stocks in addition to U.S. stocks? Let me say that this way. The U.S. markets over half the global market. The correlation between the U.S. market and the non-U.S. market is uh, 0.86. That means, I mean, we're, what, what that means is if the correlation was 1.0, they would move perfectly together in the short term. That means they move mostly together in the short term. Sometimes the non-U.S. market does better than the U.S. market, and sometimes vice versa. But the reality is, if we're going up, so will the totality of the non-U.S. market. Now, just think about that a different way. In a market where the U.S. market's going up, not all U.S. stocks will go up. In a market where the non-U.S. market's going up, not all countries will go up. Right? It's the same kind of thing. It, it, it's based on what are the stocks in the countries and how's, how's that all play into the to totality of the, of, the, of the puzzle. But in reality, yes, foreign will go up if we go up. Foreign will go down if we go down. So the 87% miracle absolutely in history ripples over into overseas, and you can actually play those numbers, and it works very consistently. Ken, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? 
the key to doing well is to either try to find information others don't have or be able to process information into completely different ways than other people have previously thought about. If that, that's what's necessary in finance theory to actually win on a trade. Otherwise, when you trade, sometimes you're going to be right and just lucky. Sometimes you're going to be wrong and unlucky, and you're going to be unlucky more than you're going to be lucky because the market's goal and function is to actually make you lose more than you win. Ken, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your insights. I'm looking forward to talking to you in our next session, as I'm sure many of our listeners are as well. If you want more of Ken's insights, I invite you to follow him on Twitter and his other 250,000 loyal followers. His Twitter handle is at Kenneth L. Fisher. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more, please visit marketminder.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. Copyright Fisher Investments 2018.